1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor Gabor Auguston. Professor Auguston is Associate Professor of History at Georgetown University. He's a well-known specialist in the history of the Ottoman Empire. And today we are discussing his newest book, The Last Muslim Conquest. The Ottoman Empire and Its Wars in Europe, published by Princeton University Press. Welcome, Professor.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
1: Professor, what is the thesis of your book?
0: Um, I don't have a single thesis. This is not like a tenure book that you have a problematique, a question, and you try to answer that single question. Um, I wrote this book because I wanted to show the importance of the Ottomans for European history, and also the European context for the emergence of the Ottoman Empire.
1: Now, in terms of uh, uh, source usage and uh, research, would it be true to say that you um, are um, employing uh, material which was not, uh, for the most part, uh, used by other scholars?
0: So there are a lot of sources that um, I... uh, found in the Ottoman archives, but I'm also relying on my colleagues' works, um, especially colleagues who are working on Ottoman history in the Balkans, in Anatolia, uh, that is my Turkish colleagues, colleagues from uh, the former Yugoslavia, colleagues in Hungary, colleagues in um, uh, Austria.
1: Now, uh, I noticed that in the uh, beginning section of the book, you put in what I've believe is the proper context or place the, um, for lack of a better expression, cultural exchange uh, view of uh, Ottoman uh, Empire's relations with the Christian West. Why is that so?
0: So <laughs> you write a book because you want to learn something and you write a book because you think that um, you disagree with colleagues, and 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 you think that you would like to correct certain views. Now, um, I'm a Hungarian. I was born and raised in Hungary. For us, the Ottoman history is part of um, what we call the the national history, and it has been rewritten from uh, since the uh, 16th century until now many times. Um, and I was so. Um, let let you uh, give you a, a background why i am here and why i am working with the ottomans it was in high school second uh, year in high school which would be what 10th uh, grade in the us system and uh, my history teacher came to the class uh, the topic was the ottoman era of hungary and he dropped a book a tiny book it turned out that he wrote this book that was his doctoral, uh, uh PhD dissertation. We were very much impressed and uh, that, uh, later in that year, I wrote a, uh, a short, um, um, paper about the Battle of Mohaj about which we might uh, want to talk later. And, um, um, then I realized that in order to do this, you have to uh, learn the languages. Later that year, I, uh, uh read another book, which turned out that it was written, it was a monograph, uh, a biograph of Suleiman, uh, by my future professor at the university. So uh, for us, Ottoman history is um, really a part of uh, our uh, national history. But we were studying European history, and it was so separated. You study European history, it was very western setting And the Ottomans were not even mentioned. Maybe when they talked about the second siege of Vienna, they mentioned that. So there was this, uh, you know, I felt very uh, strange that uh, why is it when you talk about Western Europe, you don't even mention the Ottomans. And if you talk about uh, the history of Hungary or the Balkans, uh, the Ottomans uh, play a crucial role. And it was much later... Uh, uh, in the university, at the university, when I realized that you cannot understand uh, the history of Central Europe or Western Europe uh, uh, without the Ottomans, and probably are going to talk about this uh, uh, later. Um, and then, uh, when I started to teach at Georgetown in uh, 1998, um, I realized that there was a change uh, in the tone. How historians were uh, talking about uh, the West experience with the East. If you uh, read about books uh, like uh, Jerry Bratton, uh, the Renaissance Bazaar, the Ottomans now figure prominently, and um, and uh, historians acknowledged the contribution of Muslim societies to uh, European culture. But then, what was missing there? Uh, the wars, and the antagonism. So uh, uh, in one hand, you have a historical tradition that emphasizes what you call the clash of civilization, the war between Islam and, uh, for better term, the West, which is uh, Europe, Central and Western Europe, the Mediterranean Europe. And the other hand, you have this other uh, historiography that emphasizes uh, encounters, acculturation, trade, diplomacy, alliances, uh, the so-called entanglement of uh, Ottoman history, the Ottomans, and uh, before that, even the Mamluks in European history. And the two historiographies um, uh, work separately. And I think both are wrong because you have to look at, uh, you have to look at both at the same time uh, to get a, a more realistic, uh, a more complex uh, picture.
1: Now, um, your answer provokes the following question. Um, In traditional Bulgarian-Serbian, perhaps it's also true in other countries in the Balkans, there's a, um, in terms of historiography, there is a very negative view of the period of the uh, Ottoman yoke, perhaps that particular phrase is used. Um, What is the, or what uh, is or was the uh, Madjar uh, histori- histori- historical and historiographical view of the the period of Turkish occupation.
0: So I want to add that uh, that view is changing, even in Serbian historiography or Bulgarian historiography. That is more of the 19th century, which uh, this Turkish yoke, which later was uh, taken over the, by the vulgar Marxist historiography in these countries, who continued this nationalist narrative they just i I used to tell to my students uh, they just poured some marxist and leninist sauce over it but the but the uh, core was the same nationalist historiography but even that has been changing since i would say the 1970s due to the uh well trained uh bulgarian serbian croatian uh, not to mention bosniak Uh, colleagues who were trained as Ottomanists, who went to the Ottoman archives, were looking at the other side, not just uh, the Serbian chronicles, the Bulgarian chronicles, um, and historiography. So even that is changing, and now we have a more realistic view of that. As to the Hungarian or Magyar uh, view of the Turkish era, you had both. um uh, you have the idea that Hungary is the bastion of Christendom, uh, and the Hungarians had been fighting against the Turks. They are using this term, not the Ottomans. And we can talk about this later because, uh, this empire was a dynastic empire. This empire was a multi-ethnic empire, a multi-religious empire, just like other multi-ethnic empires like the Habsburgs or the Romanovs. Uh, so it's a misnomer to call it, uh, a Turkish empire, um, uh, so uh, there was this side. But Hungary had a different history with uh, with the Ottomans. Um, uh, the medieval Hungarian kingdom was defeated and destroyed, and uh, uh, more than half of uh, Hungary was uh, occupied by the Ottomans uh, after the Battle of uh, Mohach and especially after the uh, after the Suleiman conquered Buda which is one part of uh, modern day Budapest the capital of Hungary in 1541 um and uh, for 150 years part of the uh, country was under Ottoman rule but by the end of the 16th and and um uh, was crucial because um it helped the Habsburgs to uh to get the long coveted uh Uh, crown of St. Stephen, the Hungarian crown, along with uh, the crown of Bohemia. Uh, So the Archduke of Austria, Ferdinand becomes the king of Hungary and Bohemia. And uh, this is the beginning of the Habsburg monarchy, the Danubian Habsburg monarchy. So the northern part and the western part of the country was under Habsburg rule. Uh, but uh, part of the and this is the era of the Reformation. Uh, by the late 16th century, the majority of Hungarians would uh, uh, become uh, Protestant, Lutheran, and Calvinist, and they would be very uh, much dissatisfied, at least part of the Hungarians, with uh, the Catholic Habsburgs, their treatment of the Ottoman uh, um, uh, pressure. They thought that they didn't get enough help. Uh, by the way, it is very, very similar what you have uh, this sentiment in Hungary nowadays vis a vis the European Union. Um, and uh, starting in 1606, there are a series of insurrections against uh, the Habsburgs. Now, old Hungarian historiography would tell you that, oh, these were national liberation movements. They were not. It was uh, a fight. Uh, between the nobility, part of the nobility, and the Habsburg central administration and the stake was who has how much say uh, in uh, resource management and in governing the country. But um, there is a whole series of these these anti-Habsburg insurrections and very often the Ottomans are supporting these uh, insurrections. Um, I talked about the two parts of the country. There is a third part of the country, uh, which we come at the eastern part of the country, which is Transylvania now in modern day Romania. And the, in that part of the country, you have a semi-independent uh, Hungarian state, which is a vassal of the Ottoman state. But at the same time, they uh, acknowledge the Habsburg uh, ruler as well. Uh, And these insurrections are supported and very often originated uh, in uh, in Transylvania. And uh, the Ottomans are supporting that. Uh, Later, when uh, the Ottoman era ended after the Second Siege of Vienna and what the Habsburg uh, Austrian historiography would call the Hungarian historiography would call the liberation of Hungary. That was the contemporary term Hungaria Liberata. Um, And uh, um, Hungary, along with Transylvania, would be incorporated into the Habsburg monarchy at the end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th century, which, by the way, would make uh, the Habsburgs Danube monarchy a major power in Central Europe. Um, uh, After that, there is yet another uh, insurrection against the Habsburgs. Uh, The situation is different. Now, what was at stake again, uh, how much say the Hungarians would have in this new Habsburg monarchy and this new Hungarian kingdom within the Habsburg monarchy. It was defeated by the Habsburgs and the, uh, the leader, the defeated leader found refuge in the Ottoman Empire in uh, Te- what is today um uh, in Turkey. Um, and then uh, in the 19th century. Uh, You have the uh, uh, 1848 revolutions. Hungary had its own revolution that was, again, uh, defeated by the Habsburgs uh, with Russian help. And the leader of uh, that uh, insurrection or uh, uh, war of independence, who, by the way, has a bust in the U.S. capital as a freedom fighter, uh, he found refuge in the Ottoman Empire. So, by the uh, uh, late 19th century, when you have the emergence of uh, national historiographies everywhere in Europe, including Hungary, uh, the former arch enemy, uh, the hostis Naturalis, uh, the Ottomans, this is how they were called in the 16th, 17th century, had become a friend, a supporter in Hungary, and this is the time when we had a movement of Pan-Turanian movement in Hungary. It, it relates to the origin of the Hungarians. So you had these Turkophile historians and intellectuals in Hungary, which complicated uh, how Hungarian historian looked at the Ottoman past. There were uh, Hungarian historians in the 19th century, uh, early 20th century, who painted a very rosy picture um that you know the whole 150 years era in hungary was a, a chivalry uh uh duel between uh um, ottomans and hungarians Turks and hungarians and they respected themselves they communicated which which was part of the uh everyday life and there was another strain in historiography uh, uh usually historians who were trained uh, in Austria and in Hungary and were using the sources from the Habsburg archives there were uh, more critical and of course uh, uh, they painted a more negative view so much so that the official historiograph uh, the official historian in the interwar period Jula Sekfu, uh, blamed uh, the Ottomans for everything uh, for the depopulation in Hungary uh, they claimed that Hungary had uh, was almost as flourishing as England was in the 15th century, but then came the Turks, as he said, and uh, that led to a catastrophe. Uh, Hungary lost a lot of uh, of its inhabitants. At the same time, the Serbians, Orthodox Serbians, were uh, immigrating into Hungary. That changed the ethnic composition of Hungary. So they blamed uh, the 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 Turks. <laughs> The Ottomans in the 16th century and the 17th century for Trianon, uh, which is the peace treaty after the First World War, uh, where Hungary lost uh, two thirds of its territory and uh, a lot of its population. So you can see how politicized uh, the Ottoman past was. Uh, This particular historian has a chapter which was very, very um, uh, uh, pioneering back then. It's about the environment, it's about deforestation, it's about the uh, spread of marshlands. But, of course, he again blamed uh, the the so-called Turks uh, even for the change of the environmental landscape in Hungary. So you can see how complicated uh, this is. But my uh, short answer is, whereas in the Balkan historiography, uh, the Ottoman past was viewed as very, very negative, Hungary had a more divided, more complex uh, view of its, hang- uh, of its past and relationship uh, to the Ottomans.
1: How do you explain, in structural terms, the success of the House of Osman in the 13th and 14th century in Asia Minor and the Balkans?
0: So, um, that's, <laughs> that's the one million dollar question. And there were many theories. So uh let you give you the situation this is around the thir- uh 1300s early 1300s and uh, what you have in Asia Minor Asia Minor by that time um is probably majority turkic speaking and uh, and muslim it hasn't been that it was a core province of the eastern roman empire uh which we also known as the byzantine empire but um uh, they were defeated in 1071 by the Seljuk Turks, and after that, there was waves of uh, immigration of Turkish-speaking uh, Muslim semi-nomads into this region, and you have a uh, have an empire, the Rum Seljuks, the Seljuks of Rum, um, uh, which the Ottomans would consider their uh, ancestors. Uh, but they were defeated by the Mongols, the very same Mongol invasion, by the way that reaches uh, today's Ukraine and Poland and Hungary uh, and is not the same way because it was in the uh, 40s, but uh, 10 years later, um, the Mongols would uh, defeat the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad. So when, um, when the uh, um, Seljuk Turks are defeated in 1243, uh, after that you have a, a power vacuum in Asia Minor. There is no uh, no single uh, empire uh, political power and in this power vacuum there are uh, dozens of uh, Turkoman or Turkish, Turkic Beyliks principalities emerged and Osman's, you know the founder of the Ottoman Empire Osman's principality was just one of these and it puzzled historians why is it that it would become the Ottomans who would build uh, by the mid-15th century this empire, uh, would conquer Constantinople, and and then uh, later would uh, conquer the Middle East and the Balkans and uh, go as far as the gates of Vienna. They were not uh, uh, the most uh, uh, prestigious ones. They were not uh, the strongest ones. There were many other principalities, for instance, the, the Principality of Karaman, which inherited uh, the capital of the former Seljuk Empire. There were some principalities uh, uh, which had navies, which has trade relations with uh, with the Europeans, the uh, the Genoese and uh, uh, you know the Venetians and others. So why the Ottomans? And there were many uh, explanations. Uh, the most famous was the Holy War idea. Uh, the Ottomans used the term Gaza, which is very similar to Jihad and um, um, an Austrian born uh, his uh, his uh, um, turkologist, you know, he was more of a linguist uh, and slash historian Paul Vitek advanced his theory of the Gaza t- Gaza thesis. And he explained the success of the Ottomans with um, with the Holy War, with the spirit of the Holy War which uh, propelled uh, the Ottomans, helped them to conquer these territories, and at the same time, um, they w- were using this as a legitimizing tool to, uh, uh, to bring uh, under their banner uh, the other uh, Turkic principalities. And it was the, uh, one of the most influential views until the 1970s. Um, Prior to that, um, if you looked at European historians, they said nothing to see here, what the Ottomans are doing. They are learning. They are copying the Byzantines. Look at their institutions. They have this land tenure system, which was copied from the uh, Byzantine Empire. So that was another view. Uh, uh, They were more successful because they were the ones who learned from the Byzantines and copied the Byzantines. And there was a Turkish view. Uh, advanced by um, uh, uh, Fuat uh, uh, uh who was uh, among others um, um, a minister of education in uh, modern Turkey, and he emphasized the the, the qualities of the nomad nomadic uh, Turks who brought their institutions from Central Asia. They learned from the Seljuks, so that was another view. Uh, now all this had elements. Uh, that later historians would use but uh, after the 1970s people criticized the holy war Um, they said that how can you say that um, it was the holy war that propelled these ottomans whereas um, the three of the uh, four known major uh, frontier lords in early ottoman history were of christian origin How can you say that uh, Gaza, Holy War, played such an important role where uh, you can see that these Ottomans are fighting brother Turks and brother Muslims? That is the neighboring uh, Turkic uh, principalities. And how can you say that they were holy warriors when they sided with the Byzantines? They were hired by the Byzantines. Um, So now we have a more complex uh, explanation, I think. There is no one explanation why the Ottomans would become the empire and not the Karamanids, not others. Um, and uh, one of the reasons, I would say, their location, They were uh, their principality was the closest to the Byzantine Empire. It meant that sometimes they were hired as mercenaries, but it also meant that they had to learn, you know, um, There was a book which was criticized very heavily, but there is a line in that book, and I'm not going to name the author. um, And he said that there was no glory and there was no booty in fighting other Turks. Meaning, whereas the other Turkic principalities were fighting against each other, um, the Ottomans really could use the ideology of Gaza. They could tell that we are the ones who are fighting the infidel. Fighting the Byzantines also meant that the Ottomans had to adjust their uh, military tactics. They had to learn how to besiege uh, towns and fortresses. Um, so uh, it led to military acculturation. So location is one thing. I talk about historical accidents and um, uh, as well. So historians... Uh, uh, talk about a flood that uh, changes the the riverbed of one of the frontier uh, uh, rivers, the Sakarya River. The Byzantines had built fortresses to stop the Ottomans and other Turkic principalities along that uh, river. But as a consequence of a flood, the river went back to its old uh, river uh, course and all these uh, fortresses uh, were rendered useless. So this is one um, other historians pointed at the effects of the plague. They said, look, uh, when the Ottomans are emerging, this is the time of the plague. Uh, the Byzantine Empire uh, was devastated. The Byzantine the Byzantine Empire by that time was really Constantinople and uh, its environs and Uh, You can, you can see that a densely populated urban environment is, uh, is affected more by the plague than a semi nomadic um, Ottoman uh, principality, uh, which is on the move and so on and so forth. But even that is not (laughs) satisfactory. Um, They, they said that, some historians argued that uh, the so-called maritime Turkic principalities, which the Ottomans would uh, incorporate, defeat and incorporate and annex, uh, they were affected uh, by the plague more than the Ottomans were. But again, the Ottomans would conquer these much later. Uh, so these probably all played a role, but what I uh, would argue uh, that the Ottomans were shrewd uh, politicians. Yes, Gaza later, I think Gaza later would play a very important role, not necessarily as the cause or explanation, but as a legitimizing tool. Uh, because they could claim that they were the ones who were fighting the infidels. Uh, but the Ottomans also were pragmatic enough to make alliances with the Byzantines. I talk about how the Ottomans crossed the Dardanelles and appear in Europe. It was in the context of a Byzantine civil war when the Ottomans were uh, helping and aiding uh, the climate for uh, uh, Kanta for the throne. Um, uh, That Byzantine later co-emperor would marry his daughter to the Ottoman ruler, Orhan, who is the son of the eponymous founder of the um, Ottoman uh, principality. Um, And um, this is how they cross. Uh, After they crossed, uh, they uh, remained in Europe. And that's a major difference. Whereas the other Turkic principalities, who also had been recruited as mercenaries uh, by the Byzantines, uh, who were fighting against the Slavs and uh, very often civil war against each other. Uh, they uh, they were satisfied with uh, with the pay, but the Ottomans used this occasion, uh, if you will, to grab the land to stay there, um, and it it becomes their first bridgehead in Europe, a town called Simpe, which is close to Gallipoli which was a naval base a byzantine naval base and talking about accidents uh, this is 1352 talking about accidents two years later there is an earthquake that uh, uh, destroyed partially we understand uh, the walls of gallipoli and uh, at that time the ottomans move into gallipoli they conquer gallipoli and turn it into their bridgehead and first naval bases.
1: Now on page 52 of your book, you make reference to the Ottoman policy of, uh, you call it forced migration of uh, the Christian population in the Balkans. Uh, How similar uh, was that policy to what in 19th and 20th century European history is referred to as ethnic cleansing?
0: You know, all empires move people uh, throughout history. Um, it, is, it is different because the objective is not ethnic cleansing. The Ottomans using uh, uh, surgun, uh, forced uh, resettlement, or you can call it deportation, for economic and for political reasons. So um, at the, during their early conquest, what they are doing, they are resettling Turkic speaking Muslim nomads into the Balkans. Because when they con- uh, conquer territories in the Balkans, starting in the mid uh, 14th century, I just talked about how they established their beachhead. Uh, uh, what they face, it's a, it's a territory that spoke uh, uh, languages they didn't understand. Um, Uh, They worship, uh, you know, mainly Orthodox Christians. They don't understand. uh, So they wanted to change. uh, They wanted loyal Turkic speaking uh, soldiers, at least in strategic points. So what they are doing, they are uh, resettling uh, uh, Turkish nomads, especially those who are causing problems for them in Anatolia because they are not paying their taxes. It's very, very difficult to go after the nomads and uh, use them um, or tags them. Uh, so uh, they are resettling them uh, into uh, um, southeastern Europe. Um, so this is one thing what they are doing. But they are doing also when they come for a major town uh, much later, this uh, policy is used much later. So for instance, when they Um, defeat the Safavids in 1514 and they um, um, arrive in Tabriz, uh, the capital of the Safavid Empire, they would gather all the skilled craftsmen and transfer them uh, into uh, their capital. So when they conquer a, a town, they do this. Uh, After the conquest of Constantinople in 1453, um, they try to repopulate uh, the former Byzantine capital, which they made their new capital, and they do the same. So they force people to migrate, Uh, they offer all kinds of incentives, tax uh, relief uh, for years. And um, they are giving lands to people who would settle in Constantinople or around Constantinople, but they are also uh, forcefully resettling skilled workers to reinvigorate the economy. Uh, um, they are doing it um, when they um, conquer Buddha in um, uh, 1541 they uh, resettle. And in, in even in 1526, um, um, uh, after the Battle of Mohaj, they resorted uh, part of the Jewish community there. Uh, it's not a banishment, uh, but they recognized the, the economic value uh, of uh, the Jewish merchants and uh, uh, craftsmen, and so on and so forth. So, for economic, political, and religious reasons, they are doing that. But usually they give privileges to those who are resettled because they want them to stay there and contribute to the economy in their new places.
1: Why uh, was the battle of, uh, forgive my pronunciation, Chaldiran, mm-hmm. uh as you put it on page 127, quote, one of the most significant battles in world history, unquote?
0: Uh So historians talk about these decisive battles. And I think if you look at the history of the Ottoman Empire, there are at least four or five decisive battles that really changed the course of history. One is the conquest of Constantinople that ended uh, in 1453, ended the Byzantine Empire, and it gave the Ottomans a real capital. We are going to talk about, or we might talk about later. Uh, And then uh, the next would be Chaldiran. What is the situation? The Ottomans are, by this time, they reach the banks of the Tigers and uh, Euphrates. Uh, But uh, beyond that, there is this new emerging polity called uh, the Safavid Persia. It's it's an interesting uh, polity because it is led by the leader of a Uh, mystical order, the Safaviyyah, but uh, the military backbone of this emerging state are Turkomats. The founder, Shah Ismail, uh, of this uh, new state would declare Shia Islam the state religion and position itself as a major counterweight against the expanding Sunni Ottomans. Uh, And he would send his uh, agent, proselytizing agents into Asia Minor and create a major legitimacy deficit, if you will, for the Ottomans. The Ottomans are losing taxpayers. They are using souls and they are using strategic positions. Uh, Shah Ismail captures Baghdad. His capital is in Tabriz. By the way, uh, this uh, polity is not a Persian polity at this time. This polity is, imagine this as a successor of the old Turkoman uh, uh, states. The most important is uh, of these, the Akkuyundu Turkmen confederation, who ruled what is today Eastern Asia Minor, Azerbaijan, and uh, so the very same geography where this new polity emerges. And by the way, this polity has uh, direct connections. Uh, 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 Shah Ismail's grandfather, was the leader of that, um, uh, um, one of the most important leaders of that Turkoman confederation. Now, so this is the situation in the early... uh, 16th century, and the then sultan seems to be unable to deal with uh, this challenge. By the way, uh, Ottomans do not consider them as Shia. They call them Kizilbash, which is a derogative uh, term meaning red-headed or red-head, named after their headgear, um, which um, which was a red cap and um, it had 12 tassels, symbolizing the 12 imams of the Twelver uh, Shiism, and um, but the Ottomans don't accept them; they 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 uh, declare them heretic, and uh, they declare fight against them. Uh, since uh, Bayezid II, the then sultan, seems to be unable to deal with this, his son Selim uh, Selim I who is a governor uh, in Trabzon, closer to the border. He realizes the uh, the danger, and um, long story short, he forces his father to abdicate. He takes it over in 1512, and his whole policy is to deal with the Kizilbash with the Safavid issue. And two years later, we arrive at the Battle of Chaldiran, 1512, uh, 15- 14. It's a major victory for the Ottomans. Uh, The Ottomans outnumbered uh, the Safavids. They had a very strong firepower, field cannons, and musketeers, which the Safavids didn't have uh, then. Um, The result of this, the Shah who is defeated would never lead his troops. His image as a divine leader, uh, astonished, and it pushes the uh, the Safavids to go to the east and to transform uh, into a more Persian, more Shia state, and now really position themselves as the main counterweight to their two major. Sunni Muslim adversaries, uh, the Ottomans in the West, and the uh, Mughal uh, Timurid Empire uh, in India, in the East. So, Chaldiran uh, opened the door for the Ottomans to what is today Iraq. They uh, solidified their rule in eastern and southeastern modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, And it pushed the Safavids to assume a more uh, Shia uh, and Persian character. It would take generations um, um, to to achieve that because the backbone of the uh, Safavid army would remain uh, these Turkoman uh, horse archers. But it also pushes the Safavids to uh reform their military, to copy the Ottomans, establish an infantry, equip that infantry with firearms. Uh, so the Ottomans played an important role, if you will, in the transmission and spread of firearms technology, because they forced the Safavids, who, by the way, knew about uh, firearms and they had used firearms, they had firearms in fortresses, they just didn't have it in uh, the same numbers and the Ottomans, and they didn't have it in um, uh, at the Battle of Chaldiran. Uh, that's a myth, that uh, the Safavids uh, uh, didn't have firearms, and it took two uh, uh, English uh, adventurers in the late uh, uh, 16th century to introduce firearms. This is the so-called Cherlemite. It's not true. Uh, but uh, Chaldiran was important because it pushed the, the Safavids to reform, uh, gradually reform their military as well.
1: Why did Suleiman the Magnificent decide to attack the Madyars as opposed to the Persians early in his reign?
0: So, uh, Suleiman is the son of Selim, about uh, whom we just talked, who defeated uh, uh, the Safavids at Ch- Chaldiran, which really uh, reconfigured the power relations And what you have now That you have Turkey And you have a, a Shia Iran Started with uh, chaldiran Selim continued then And he defeated the Mamluks Of Egypt and Syria Who were Sunni And um, they had been ruling Over these territories Since 1250 uh, 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 But Selim uh, thought That the Mamluks didn't help him uh, they colluded, if you will, uh, with the Safavids, and uh, he decided to punish them. That's, that's another, there are two battles in that, uh, with Selim. Um, uh, one in March Dabik, ju- just north of Aleppo in 1516, and the next year outside Cairo, Raidania, uh, January uh, 17, 1517. And that ended the Mamluk rule. And um, it uh, introduced the Ottomans into the uh, Arabic uh, heartland, Arabic speaking heartlands of Islam. And it changes the Ottoman polity. It's, it's crucial. It's crucial for the history of the Middle East, uh, because now the Ottomans ruling uh, from uh, Egypt and Syria, there are the guardians of the two holy sanctuaries, Mecca and Medina. They are responsible now for organizing and protecting the annual pilgrimage, the Hajj, and so on and so forth. So those are, again, crucial battles. But Salim's policy uh, and short reign, uh, he dies in 1520. Uh, 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 so his reign is just um, eight years, but he really achieved and transformed uh, the, geopolitical, the geopolitics of uh, the Middle East. Uh, But his continuous war uh, devastated uh, the Ottoman economy. Uh, He introduced a trade embargo uh, with uh, uh, Iran, south of Iran, south of Persia. Uh, That hit very hard, the Ottoman economy. Uh, You had many, you know, in eastern and southeastern Anatolia people were resenting the fact that the Ottomans, who are the, now the leaders of Islam, are fighting against brother Muslims, not just Shia Muslims, but they just destroyed the Sunni Muslim state that had centuries of history. Uh, the Mamluks were, remember, the Mamluks were the ones who stopped the Mongol invasion and saved uh, and defeated the Mongol army in 1260. The, Mon- uh, the Mamluks were the one who uh, kicked out the crusaders at the end of the 13th century. And the Mamluks were the ones who were the protectors of Mecca and Medina. Uh, the Mamluks were the one where uh, the shadow Abbasid Caliph was residing. And the Ottomans defeated them and destroyed them. So for economic reasons, for ideological reasons, it was uh, this policy, this Eastern policy was untenable. And it seems that Suleiman realized that very early. Suleiman becomes sultan, uh, I think in September, late September uh, 1520. And the next spring, the next summer, he's besieging and conquering Belgrade which is then today is the capital of Serbia Back then, that was a key uh, that was the key of the Hungarian southern defense system in order to launch a campaign in the spring early summer uh, you had to send the mobilization orders uh, in October November so Suleiman becomes sultan 30th of September within weeks He made the decision that we have to end the war in the East and we have to launch a war against the Hungarians in Europe. Those are the infidels. Those are the ones who defeated us, who humiliated us. Uh, Mehmed uh, II, his great grandfather who conquered Constantinople in 1453 was defeated and stopped by the Hungarians and the crusading army at Belgrade in uh, in 1456. So, but uh, he gets the information. uh, The Ottomans had a very good uh, information gathering system. His border uh, frontier governors sending news about the riches of Hungary and the weakness of the Hungarian military. So they thought, that we can go against the Hungarians, uh, uh, you know, it would we would be rewarded by the riches of um, of this country if we conquer them, if if we defeat them, and it seems that their army is uh, not as strong as um, other armies we might want to fight. Uh, the distance is somewhat closer. Uh, Constantinople, and the distance between Constantinople and Belgrade is, uh, I think, it's a thousand uh, kilometers or so. And uh, if you march to Tabriz and Baghdad, that's uh, twice the uh, the distance. So, uh, plus uh, he uh, wanted to position himself um, as um, um, as a Muslim ruler who is fighting. Uh, against uh, the infidel.
1: Now, was Suleiman's failure to successfully go beyond uh, Hungary due to policy or logistics?
0: Both. Um, you know, when Suleiman defeated the Hungarians in uh, 1526, uh, contemporary Ottoman chronicles uh, praise it as the greatest victory. Um, and, um, but it was, um, it was a military victory. It crushed the Hungarians. Um, the army was totally destroyed. Um, the, uh, half of the clergy, high clergy, and the chief bureaucrats of the country, uh, were destroyed. But, and the king was killed. But since the king was killed, The Habsburgs, who had these dynastic agreements with the Jagiellonian kings of Hungary, going back to the uh, 15th century, it was recently renewed in 1515, the Habsburgs now uh, declared their claim for the crown of Hungary. Now, Hungary and Bohemia, these were elective, uh, elective monarchies, so you cannot just show your... Dynastic agreement with another dynasty who happened to be ruled over these territories, you have to be elected. But the Habsburg managed to get uh, their guy, uh, Ferdinand of Habsburg, who happens to be the younger brother of Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, uh, becomes King of Hungary, King of Bohemia. And, um, but he inherited from the Hungarian the burden to defend, uh, his kingdoms against the Ottomans. So whereas uh, Suleiman defeated a a middle-range, weakening Hungarian country, whose population was just about uh, uh, 3 million, the Ottomans by this time had a population of 12, 13 million. The revenues of the Ottoman Empire are seven times more than uh, that of the Ottomans. So it was a a, a small uh, middle rank kingdom. This is what he defeated. But he created with his victory uh, the emergence of a major power, uh a major dynastic monarchy, the Habsburg monarchy, uh which could count on the financial and military help of uh, the other Habsburg territories, the Holy Roman Empire and uh, the Spanish Habsburgs as well. And it created a balance of power with the help of the German territories, the Holy Roman Empire, Empire and with the revenues from the other Habsburg lands, the Habsburgs were able to build a Fortress system, a defense system that successfully stopped uh, the Ottomans. Now, uh, this fortress system is just a couple of miles from the Habsburg capital in Vienna, and it's uh, uh, a thousand miles from Constantinople, so hence the logistics. Um, some historians advanced a uh, theory that uh, the logistical constraints of the time uh, didn't enable the Ottomans to go further than Hungary. And they calculated it's a very complicated calculation. They say, look, um, in in the time, because of climate and provisioning, you, you have really just uh, six, seven months uh, to wage war. You cannot start your campaigns because uh, before the spring, you have to wait until uh, the floods um, recede in the Balkans. You have to cross all these rivers when you are marching from Constantinople or from the Balkans towards Vienna. You have to wait for the new grass because you have to feed your horses. So you start around March, April. By late November, you have to come back to uh, Constantinople, they are using armies from Asia Minor. You know, the backbone of the Ottoman military are these provincial troops who are uh, living in the provinces and um, are using the revenue from their own villages, uh, from own from their own military thieves to maintain themselves and uh, maintain their armies. Uh, and you had to come back. So that's the logistical constraint. And they say if you have only six months, you probably need uh, two, three months to reach your uh, to Vienna to reach uh, Vienna. But then you almost have to come back, and uh, so you have only maybe a month, maybe two months for uh, for besieging these fortresses. If your enemy is capable to build a defense system. That can withstand the siege, uh, let's say a couple of weeks, and can mobilize a relief army. That would uh, um, uh, engage you. Then you really don't have uh, too much chance to conquer these territories. to so hence the logistical explanation.
1: Uh, why did the port never become a significant uh, Indian Ocean power? Uh,
0: it has logistical. And political, uh, and I think the political reasons are more important. The Ottomans always position uh, themselves as a uh, as a power centered in Constantinople. They consider the Black Sea and the eastern uh, Mediterranean as their sea. Um, after uh, they are defeated at Lepanto. Um, and after uh, they made a treaty with the Spanish Habsburgs in 1578 and 81, uh, there is an understanding that the eastern Mediterranean is an Ottoman sphere, whereas the western Mediterranean is a Habsburg, a uh, Spanish Habsburg sphere. Um, they are controlling the, the Black Sea. The bulk of their revenue comes from the Balkans and Asia Minor and Syria and Egypt. So they have to control these territories. Uh, if you look at what the Ottomans are doing, uh, the the, um, the Indian Ocean is too far. Now there are two access to the Indian Ocean. When they conquer the Mamluks, uh, then uh, they have a small fleet on the Red Sea, and when they conquer Iraq, uh, uh, they create a a province uh, based in Basra, but that's not a firm hold over Basra. So what is happening very often in Iraq that the Ottomans are um, accepting local lords and just appointing these local lords uh, as their own governors, for instance, in Basra. They have a fleet and they have a naval basis in Basra as well. Uh, But uh, the number of... uh, ships that they have either in the Red Sea or in Basra is, uh, is not comparable to the main Ottoman Navy, which is stationed in uh, Constantinople, and, is u- and uh, that Navy is used in the Mediterranean and, and the Black Sea. So, for instance, whereas they would mobilize 250, 300 different vessels in their wars in the Mediterranean and in the Black Sea, uh, in the Red Sea, they had a dozen, maybe two dozens of uh, of, uh, of ships, um, and and these are galleys. You cannot fight with oar powered galleys in the Indian Ocean against the uh, sailing, much stronger uh, uh, Portuguese uh, navy. They had no chance, uh, and they realized that. And uh, there was no Sultan that was. Uh, who who would lead a a campaign against the Portuguese, uh, not even Grand Vizier. Uh, The Ottomans would outsource the protection of the Red Sea, and this is what mattered, uh, and the occasional fight against the Portuguese to local uh, governors, uh, the governors of Egypt or Basra, or uh, adventurers uh, who... uh, whom they would uh, charge and uh, support occasionally. Uh, but, and they had more limited the Ottoman strategy uh, centered in, uh, around the Mediterranean and Central Europe. This is what mattered. The fight against the Habsburgs in Hungary and in the Mediterranean and the fight against the Safavids in, uh, in Iraq. This, these are the two major uh, policy concerns. Uh, for the Ottomans. Um, the, uh, with regard to the Portuguese, uh, since they are the guardians of Mecca and Medina, it hit them very hard when in 1517 the Portuguese besieged Jeddah, which is the port city of Mecca. So they had to defend the holy cities against the Portuguese. So as long as we can stop the Portuguese. At, uh, um, uh, to enter the Red Sea, we are fine. There was one more concern, and this is economic, because because of the circumnavigations, the spice trade uh, was diverted. And it hit the Ottomans because they were losing revenues. It traditionally came uh, through the Red Sea and Egypt and the Mediterranean and, and would reach uh, the e- European merchant states. But uh, the Portuguese diverted that. But the Ottomans managed to re uh, reestablish these routes. And by the end of the 16th century, the amount of uh, um, this, you know, the spice trade uh, is coming again through the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. So they had these two objectives and they these were limited objectives and they uh, managed to. Uh, uh, to fulfill these goals and after that uh, it was more of a defensive position Uh, this is why uh, they had limited activities in the Indian Ocean against the Portuguese
1: Uh, How did the Ottomans uh, relate in terms of their military um, capabilities to the so-called revolution in military um so-called revolution in military affairs that uh, has been propounded by I suppose the best known historian is um Jeffrey Parker.
0: Uh, yes. So this is the so the title of that book is the uh military revolution, military innovation and uh, rise of the West. So the the main idea is that with the introduction of firearms, um uh, the firearms revolutionized the nature of warfare. Uh, now it is the uh, infantry equipped with uh, hand firearms uh, that is capable of winning the wars because of the countermarch, the volley fire. Uh, number one. Number two, uh, the, uh, siege can, uh, the, uh, at sieges they are using cannons. That revolutionizes the fortress uh, building uh, because the new weapon, the siege cannon, uh, destroys the medieval uh, fortresses. So you have to rebuild these fortresses, uh, make the walls stronger and bigger so that you can place your own cannon to counter the besiegers uh, as well. Uh, Parker claimed that uh, only the central government had the resources and the political will to uh, reform its militaries and uh, build these new armies and these new fortifications. And this would eventually lead to the emergence of the centralized state. And this is the end of the feudal lords. So it's a very interesting theory because it explains state formation in Europe uh, with military technology. Uh, on a global scale, uh, he introduced the sailing ship, which also had a very strong um, artillery p- firepower, and he claimed that with these new uh, uh sailing ships and firepower the west uh colonized the east. So he explained with military technology, uh, if you will, imperialism and colonialism as well. Now, uh, and um, um, he was criticized and uh, um, if you look at the new volume of the Cambridge History of War, uh, there is not a single, it, it, it will be published soon, there is not a single article that would use the, the term of military uh, revolution. Now, this uh, Uh, view also claimed that the non-Western societies and empires were unable to keep pace with uh, Western military innovation. And it was not so much himself, but others who advanced the theory that, oh, it was because of Islam. These guys are very conservative. They're following Islam. What does Islam say? Islam says that uh, You cannot use novelty. You cannot use devices or techniques that were not attested uh, in the time of the prophet. Uh, They have this uh, term, Bida, novelty. And now they had some difficulty to explain this because uh, the Mamluks, uh, very early uh, in the 1360s, they uh, started to use firearms. And the Ottomans obviously were a very strong so-called gunpowder empire. And many would explain their success at the siege of Constantinople by their firepower. It was important uh, and, and if not decisive, there were other reasons why uh, they managed to conquer Constantinople. Um, logistics mattered, again, a lot. Um, so they had difficulty. But then they they explained, yes, the Ottomans initially seems to be uh, very adaptive, but... Whereas the West went towards uh, smaller uh, field artillery, which revolutionizes the battles and battle tactics, the Ottomans continue to cast these huge, monstrous, outdated, heavy uh, uh, weapons. But it was based on atypical uh, selective sources mainly uh, Western travelers who would travel to Constantinople and would notice this really huge, monstrous cannon uh, which were not used uh, even by, the, by that time. Uh, they were just displayed on, on, on the walls of uh, Constantinople and uh, uh, major castles in, uh, in the Balkans, which these European travelers noticed now um i was very much dissatisfied and my first book was about this issue um if you want to learn about uh you know a, a country's uh military hardware you are not relying on uh, occasional observers who can uh, see pieces of that military hardware what you do you go to the archives the ottomans were the most uh one of the most advanced uh, empires, in terms of bureaucracy, uh, they produced millions of uh, um, account books of everything, including cannon foundries, saltpeter works, gunpowder works. So I managed to, uh, in 10 years, to read most of these uh, account books. And then you can uh, see the number and the different types of cannons they were casting. You can see the amount of gunpowder. They were producing even the composition of that gunpowder. And the conclusion is that the Ottomans were casting uh, cannons uh, more than anyone else, that the Ottomans had a very robust uh, uh, industry, uh, 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 weapons industry. They were not, as uh, Parkin and others would say, uh, relying on Western military hardware uh they were not dependent on uh raw materials they had almost everything except for tin that you need for casting copper uh and bronze cannon bronze cannon not copper um but everything else they had in plenty they had the infrastructure the uh, industry infrastructure they had the financial instru- infrastructure to produce uh, weapons and uh, ammunition in quantities that was more than uh, their navies their fortresses and their standing army needed so they were self-sufficient in producing these weapons as to the quality of the weapons i don't see any major difference by the 17th century european weapons probably were better uh, quality the vanishing um, cannons were probably uh, better quality, but I I would uh, say to my students that I would say that until the nuclear age, what mattered is was uh, quantity rather than quality. The European muskets maybe had better uh, 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 firing mechanisms, but in an age when you use volley fire, mass fire. Uh, the accuracy didn't matter. It didn't matter whom you hit uh, when you fired at your enemy. You you hit someone and you killed someone. So the Ottomans, and that was the strength of the Ottoman economy, the Ottoman institutions, the Ottoman logistics, that until the late 17th century, the Ottomans would outnumber uh, every uh, enemy, uh, And they had a superiority in the numbers of troops mobilized and deployed and in the number uh, of weapons they used. Now, Europeans would realize the strengths of the Ottoman military and they would, especially those who are fighting against the Ottomans, and here uh, we have to think about the Habsburgs, they would adjust their military accordingly. So uh, I think uh, the Ottomans not just managed to keep pace with uh, Western military uh, developments, but because of their uh, numerical and firepower superiority, they played an important role in forcing others to uh, reform their militaries, and uh, so the Ottomans played an important catalyzing uh, role. Uh, the Safavids would uh, adjust their military and, um, you know, uh, use more firearms and, and, and reshuffle their military because of the Ottoman challenge. Uh, the Habsburgs would build a defense system in Hungary. They would modernize the fortresses so that they can withstand Ottoman firepower. Uh, the Habsburgs had to pay f- for that. So they had to centralize the uh, the military administration, the financial administration to so the Habsburg uh, military develop You cannot understand the Habsburg military developments without the Ottomans. Of course, the Habsburgs are fighting in the West as well. So I'm not saying that everything that happened was because of the Ottomans. But a lot of things happened because of the Ottomans. And you cannot understand uh, these um uh, military transformations without uh, uh, the Ottomans and um, I would add something more uh, that uh, the Ottoman challenge um, and the uh, Habsburg response um, is um, so th- there was a dual effect uh, because of the Ottoman challenge on the on one hand, The Habsburgs, it pushed the Habsburgs toward a centralization, centralizing the administration, centralizing finances, centralizing uh, the military and uh, military innovation and so on and so forth. But uh, uh, the Habsburgs never had enough resources to do this by themselves. So they had to rely uh, on the knowledge, the resources. Uh, of the estates. So the central government couldn't do it by itself. Uh, they uh, relied financially and uh, administratively on the Hungarian estates, on the Bohemian estates, on the Austrian estates, the estates uh, in the Holy Roman Empire. and uh, And this would lead to decentralization. So you see, on one hand, it pushes the Habsburgs towards centralization, but on the other hand, it perpetuated uh, the strengths of uh, the estates, especially uh, in regions which were close to the border. And that explains why in Hungary or uh, in parts of Austria, the estates, even in the 17th century, had so much power vis-a-vis the central government in Vienna.
1: Did Suleiman, Magnif- uh, Suleiman the Magnificent have a grand strategy and if he did, what was it exactly?
0: I think he had a, a grand strategy, but even that grand strategy changed in his lifetime. So his um, for himself, for Suleiman, the fight against the Habsburgs uh, in Hungary and in the Mediterranean. I think that was his main uh, main goal. But he realized by the mid, uh, by the late 40s, 1540s, uh, 1550s, that he will not be able to defeat the Habsburgs, Josephus. Um, and this rivalry with the Habsburgs uh, manifested not just at the battlefield it manifested it itself uh, at diplomatics uh, at the level of ideology in terms of the titles they are using but uh um because of the constraints we talked about logistical constraints and economic constraints he realized that he wouldn't be able to uh defeat uh Suleiman and he made a compromise and this is the 1547 uh Peace treaty, Habsburg-Ottoman peace treaty, where he acknowledged that the Habsburgs would stay in Hungary, in Northern Hungary, and in Western Hungary and rule that country. Um, and he won't be able to, uh, go further than that. So this grand strategy that was based on, on, on conquest, on, um, strengthening the military, um, and Ideologically, to position himself as the new world conqueror uh, failed by the uh, second part of his life. And it changes uh, um, the way he 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 would rule in the remaining years. Um, in fact, it would be interesting to write a a, a biography of Charles V and Suleiman uh, because both realized their failure. Uh, Charles, of and and it's about the same time, Uh, Charles realized that um, he cannot win uh, against the Protestants and then the peace treaty, 1555 in Augsburg, which uh, he was very wise. He outsourced that to his uh, younger brother and successor as Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Ferdinand, to negotiate and conclude that peace treaty with the Protestant estates of uh, uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, he also realized that he is not going to defeat uh, um, uh, Suleiman, um, and there is a compromise and a division of uh, spheres of influence in the in, in the Mediterranean as well. Um, so, the the idea of Monarchia Universalis or the universal monarch, the universal king, I think was very very Strong uh, in the Ottoman Empire and uh, in, for Suleiman and for Charles V as well. It not not necessarily just the rulers, but their advisors. So uh, Charles V's uh, Grand Chancellor Guten played a crucial role in uh, creating the ideology. And for Suleiman, uh, the most important person I would say was Ibrahim Pasha, his childhood friend and his grand vizier uh, for his early years. Um, he he would execute him in 1536, but until then, uh, Ibrahim Pasha played a crucial role in devising Ottoman grand strategy, uh, ideology, and presenting his monarch as the new Alexander, as the new universal uh, monarch, who should uh, uh, rule uh, over the whole world, when the Habsburg Emperor's uh, ambassador, when they were negotiating, he said that uh, we have to decide who is going to rule the world. There there could be only one king. There could be only one universal monarch. And uh, But this idea, this strategy would fail in both empires by the uh, mid-16th uh, century.
1: Why did the Ottoman Empire not evolve into a fiscal military state as other European powers did in the late 17th, early 18th centuries?
0: Uh, so, if you look at the evolution of, I, I wouldn't compare the Ottomans to to France or England or um, because what matters is whom you are fighting, and the Ottomans are adjusting. Uh, their military according to their enemies. And so did the Habsburgs. So did the, the Safavids. Uh, what you have because of the, um, the Ottoman fiscal, uh, military system, which was based on these, um, military fiefs, the Timar system, um, whereby you give, uh, uh certain revenues to soldiers and you settle these soldiers in uh, nearby those revenues in villages uh, with this uh, system which is by the way very similar to the uh, uh, to the european feudal system there are major differences as well because the the timar holder the uh, the provincial cavalry never owned the village um, uh, he just had the right to collect certain revenues. If he overtaxed the, the peasantry, he was punished, he was removed, uh, as long as the system uh, functioned and the central government uh, could control the system. So based on that system, the Ottomans uh, had a much larger army than any of their um, uh, um, enemies. Um, they had a much smaller Central Army, a standing army, one of the first standing armies in Europe that is uh, continuous. Um, the Janissary Infantry, but there were also six cavalry divisions. These were uh, a standing army, uh, trained army, uh, paid regularly uh, every three months uh, in cash, and they had auxiliary forces. So with these forces, the Ottomans were much stronger than any of their uh, uh, contemporaries, uh, enemies. And it was a more centralized uh, uh, army and system, even the provincial army, which was controlled by the central government. So this is the 16th century. Because of the changes in military technology, because of economic crisis, uh There are major changes in the uh, financing of the army. The military value of the provincial cavalry declined because they were uh, not able to fight against the Habsburg infantry uh, and some cavalry equipped with firearms. That pushed the Ottomans. to increase the number of uh, the infantry, the Janissaries, who had already been equipped with firearms, and to recruit uh, temporary uh, infantry soldiers, at least for the campaign season, from the peasantry, uh, to fight uh, the Habsburg infantry to counter their firepower. They realized that at the end of the 16th century, there is a a long war against the Habsburgs, starting in Bosnia in 1591, but really the war uh, broke out in uh, 1593 and it lasted uh, until 1606. It's a long war, exhausting war. And during this long war, both the Ottomans and the Habsburgs realized uh, the weaknesses of the Ottomans and then the Ottomans. uh, um, started to adjust their military accordingly. So, whereas under Sulaiman you had uh, 10, uh, 15,000 Janissaries, you would have uh, 37, uh, 50,000 uh, uh, Janissaries by the mid-17th uh, uh, century. That's a major burden on your treasury, so you have to adjust the fiscal system as well. At the same time, uh, and the proportion. So, if you look at the deployed army, whereas under Suleiman, 75% of your deployed troops were these uh, provincial cavalry forces uh, paid uh, by military thieves called um, timar, and only 25% of your deployed military were uh, the standing army paid from the central treasury. That changes. By the late 17th century, 50% of the deployed troops are uh, of the standing army. And uh, the Timar Yotsipah is only 15% or so because their value, military value, decreased. So what the state would do, the Timar system is not abolished. The Timar system is still used, but those revenues would be attached to the, uh, the crown lands so that the state can uh, collect the revenues from there, either uh, through tax collectors or the state would use a tax farming system when tax farmers would collect and pay it into the treasury. So the system is still used. It just is used for uh, paying the central army. Uh, so whereas and in Europe, you have a tendency towards centralization. Uh, the crown has more control over the resources, over uh, the taxes, over recruitment, and over uh, the command of the military. The Ottomans went the opposite direction. They started as a more centralized military, a more powerful military, but they are moving toward military uh, devolution and uh, fiscal decentralization. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that it's a bad thing. Uh, they just realized that they, you know, they couldn't continue for military and for fiscal reasons the old system. You know, in the old days, people thought that oh, this military uh, devolution meant that the Ottomans are losing uh, power. The fiscal decentralization means the same, but in fact, the the fact that uh, huge chunks of revenues now outsourced to local uh, tax farmers, local notables, if you will, it doesn't mean that those are lost for the central government, because these uh, provincial governors, who are now administering a, a good. Uh, chunk of the revenue that previously had been under the control of the central government, they are obliged to bring certain number of troops. So the system capable not just meeting the military needs, in fact, they are exceeding. When Suleiman is fighting against the Hungarians or the Habsburgs or the Safavids, He's mobilizing maybe 60, 70,000 uh, soldiers. Again, the majority of these are these uh, provincial forces. By the end of the 17th century, the Ottomans are capable of mobilizing uh, 90 or 100,000 soldiers. So they could increase the number of troops that they bring to the battlefield as far as Hungary. Now, the problem is. That the sixty thousand troops that Suleiman using, it outnumbered the Hungarian enemy uh, three to one, and it outnumbered the Habsburgs all the time. The problem that by the seventeenth century the Habsburgs uh, would be capable to bring their own eighty or hundred thousand troops, matching the Ottomans in terms of number of troops. but these troops, are more centralized, better, uh, they have better uh, commanders, uh, uh, they have better weaponry, and they have a very sophisticated uh, tactics. The Ottomans still capable with this uh, military devolution and fiscal decentralization, they still capable of matching the Habsburgs in terms of numbers, but not in terms of quality. Imagine that uh, uh, you have 50 guys coming somewhere from northern Syria led by uh, their local, um, you know, uh, captain. Um, So the army consists of, at least part of the army, consists of these uh, provincial cavalry who spoke different languages, Many of these are not professional soldiers, never fought against the Western enemy. There is um, uh, The weaponry is uh, locally sourced. There is no standardization on terms of weaponry. You cannot fight uh, the Habsburgs with such a, uh, uh, an army. And this is why. Plus, The Ottomans real strength throughout the one hundred and fifty years when they are fighting the Habsburgs and the Hungarians was in siege warfare. The Ottomans are still good in siege warfare, but um, throughout the one hundred and fifty years they had to fight the Habsburg uh, field armies um, only a couple of times. The last time they fought them, it was in 1664. Since then, and the Habsburgs are fighting in the Western Front. The Thirty Years' War had been a major laboratory, uh, an improvement uh, uh, for military tactics and weaponry and, and, and command and so on and so forth. The Ottomans knew nothing about this. And then after the Second Siege of Vienna, they are forced to fight field battles, 15 field battles within 15 years. Against the Habsburgs, most of these field battles they are uh, defeated. So, yes.
1: No, I was going to ask. Please, please finish.
0: No. So um, I see a, a opposing trend. The Habsburgs, partly uh, because of the Ottoman pressure, military superiority, uh, went toward a centralization, military innovation, fiscal centralization, bureaucratic centralization. And um, thanks to these uh, changes and thanks to the aid that they are receiving from the Holy Roman Emperor, from the papacy, uh, from their uh, allies like Venice, are were capable of uh, deploying an army which for the first time in their history Uh, in in the wars against the Ottomans now matched the Ottomans in terms of numbers. The Ottomans went the opposite direction towards uh, military uh, devolution and uh, and fiscal decentralization. That still produced the numbers, but not uh, the quality, not the leadership, not the experience.
1: How important to Ottoman military success was the comparative weaknesses of the pre-existing Balkan states, weak as compared to, say, Valois, France, or Habsburg, Spain, etc.
0: I try to present the uh, uh, emergence of the Ottomans in their European contest, and I emphasize that um, by the time the Ottomans crossed the Dardanelles Straits and started their uh, conquest in the Balkans, there is no major state in the, uh, in Southeastern Europe in the Balkan Peninsula. Um, that is, um, they emerged or they continued their conquest in a power vacuum. So if you look at the map of the Balkan Peninsula prior to the Ottoman uh, conquest, there were three major states that controlled this region, the Byzantine Empire, serbia and bulgaria but all of them had been weakened by the time the ottomans appeared in southeastern europe Uh, the byzantine empire had been engulfed in a civil war serbia broke up into competing principalities uh, around uh, the mid uh, 14th century and especially after the extinction of the Nemanjić dynasty that ruled Serbia and Bulgaria was uh, partitioned into two parts by its ruler Tsar Alexander between his two sons and in the meantime in what is uh, north what was northeastern Bulgaria um, a lord a local warlord possibly of Turkish origin called Dobrotica uh, from whose name Dobruja. Uh, Comes. Uh, So um, when the Ottomans appear in the Balkans, there is no major uh, power. And that uh, certainly aided the Ottomans. And the Ottomans played the civil war and uh, the war between these local lords uh, very skillfully.
1: One of the arguments of Balkan nationalist discourse. In the 19th and uh, up to say 20, 30 years ago, and indeed uh, Balkan historiography, was that um, Ottoman rule did long term damage to the economic structures of the Balkans. Would you agree or disagree with this uh, assertion?
0: So, uh, as you mentioned, up until uh, 20 years or so ago, so there is a serious uh, reconsideration due to new research, even among uh, historians um, uh, in the former Yugoslavia, uh, Bulgaria, or even in Greece. So first of all, the, the problem was that for a very long time, uh, historians didn't take incident, into consideration the, uh, the two Ottoman Empire uh, paradigm. That is, um, if we talk about an Ottoman Empire that lasted for 600 years, you cannot pick let's say the 18th century of the 19th century and project back uh, economic realities, the weakness of the state to the 15th or the 16th centuries. And you cannot do the opposite either. Um, that is to take the so-called golden age of the Ottoman Empire uh, uh, when the Ottoman institutions were functioning quite well and to project it uh, um to future centuries and this is exactly what uh, historians uh, had done in the past Balkan nationalist historiography tend to focus on the 18th century and the uh, 19th century Re- uh, remember that many of the Balkan states were under Ottoman rule for uh, 400 years and and they picked the 18th century and uh, whereas turkish historians and uh, historians in Europe western europe or uh, or in the United States, focused on the uh, era from the mid-15th century and the 16th centuries. And if you look at this earlier period, then you see uh, that there was economic development, population increased, there was urbanization. Uh, the, firmer, uh, the formerly fractured peninsula was integrated into an empire, into an imperial system, which uh, regularized the systems of taxation, trade, and so on and so forth. So if you look at the 15th and 16th centuries, what you see, it's economic stability, economic development. The government, the Ottoman government, in the uh, second part of the 15th century and the 16th century was able to survey the revenues, to regularize the taxes. It issued um, uh, so-called locals that told the local um, Ottoman landlords what to uh, uh, tax how much to tax they were very very careful not to overtax the population they studied the pre-ottoman taxation systems and they adjusted their taxes accordingly often lowering the taxes Uh, they were able to punish over taxation of the uh, taxpaying subjects uh, and monitor revenue collection and so on and so forth and what you see and imagine that that uh, uh, prior to the ottoman rule when the, a merchant traveled from Vienna through the Balkans, he was stopped many times and had to pay taxes to these uh, in this fractured political system to the local lords. When this territory was integrated into the Ottoman Empire, you paid taxes once, then you entered into Ottoman territory. And if one of the Ottoman provincial governors, after that, want to tax you, you had a recourse. You could complain. Uh, your complaint was investigated. And those who, uh, um, you know, overtax you were punished. So this is the 15th and the 16th centuries. And you can see that there is an economic uh, flourishing here. Uh, um, the Ottomans did not centralize everything. They accepted, uh, for instance, different monetary systems. But the uh, silver aksha that they were using as a... a for accounting purposes and uh, they used it to pay the janissaries and um, in everyday life as well it was relatively stable um so in this environment um, in fact everyone profited from this new uh, imperial system there was an increase of population uh, uh, historians estimate that overall not just the uh, balkan peninsula but uh, the Ottoman Empire had a population about 12 million um, in the 1520s, which had uh, risen probably up to 22, 25 million previously. There were historians even said that uh, 30 million. And you cannot explain it with uh, a new conquest after the uh, uh, 1520s, 1530s. So uh, there was a natural growth of population. There was an urbanization. The Ottomans themselves established uh, uh, new towns like Sarajevo, modern-day Sarajevo, and so on and so forth. So this is the 15th and 16th centuries. Now, uh, the system lost control uh, by the 18th century. Uh, this is the era of the so-called local notables, the, the, uh, the central government had less control over taxation, over provincial administration. Uh, you have uh, local rebellions. Um, You have uh, depopulations, migrations, which the government unable uh, to control. So uh, what I want to (laughs) emphasize is to we have to differentiate between the 15th and the 16th centuries and um, and the 18th and the 19th centuries. And you cannot project uh, either one uh, back or forth to explain uh, the problems. Now, I am not an economist. Uh, to explain modern-day problems in the economy, but um, I think that uh, there were regimes after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire uh, whose uh, economic policy uh, had more influence over present-day situation than uh, the Ottomans.
1: Why was the long war of the late 16th, early 17th century is so important?
0: So, um, it is important uh, for many reasons. First of all, it's an excellent example to show that when you have a war between two major empires, it's not necessary because uh, of a conscious decision or a grand strategy or a plan uh, in one or the other imperial centers. The long war Uh, Grew out from uh, smaller, uh, small wars, uh, skirmishes, cross border skirmishes along the Bosnian Croatian frontier uh, by a belligerent Ottoman governor called Hasan Pasha. Now, uh, and factionalism uh, played a role in the Ottoman uh, center as well. It so happened that there were two very powerful Grand Viziers. Uh, One was very successful. in the war against the Safavids between 1578 and uh, uh, and uh, 90 and concluded a relatively good peace treaty. The other wasn't as successful and he wanted to outshine his rival, this is Sinan Pasha, outshine his rival, Farhad Pasha, um, and uh, argued for a war against the Habsburgs in Hungary and he used uh, these small wars and the major defeat of Hassan Pasha, where many Sanjak governors and Hassan Pasha, the governor of bosnia uh, itself was uh, killed as a pretext to launch his war now um it started the real big war started in fifteen ninety three and it lasted until sixteen o six it was uh It had major consequences uh Um, with regard to the economy, with regard to the transformation of the Ottoman military and war financing as well. What was the result of this war? The Ottomans captured two important fortresses in Hungary, Eger and Kanesha, and they uh, uh, established two new provinces in Hungary. But it really didn't mean major territorial expansion. Uh, And certainly it did not mean any major increase in revenue. In fact, these two uh, new provinces, and um, um, especially the Western provinces in Hungary, couldn't collect enough revenue to pay the soldiers that were supposed to defend these provinces. So they created deficit. These new provinces had to be uh, 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 financed either from the imperial treasury in Constantinople in Istanbul or from the Balkan provinces so economically it wasn't a good result and um, when this war ended uh, it ended in a uh, with a peace treaty in 1606 uh, because both empires um, were exhausted and both empires faced other urgent uh, uh, you know, political problems. Um, the Safavids uh, attacked the uh, Ottomans. The, the, the war between the Safavids and the Ottomans was renewed in six, 1603. So they had to redeploy some of the soldiers to the eastern frontier. And in Hungary, there was a rebellion, uh, a, a, a war against the Habsburgs that started a year later. So they both had to deal with these other issues so they decided to conclude the peace treaty and but it's very symbolic this peace treaty peace treaty was uh, concluded in uh, in Habsburg territory in the in the Habsburg uh, uh, delegation's camp and that was unheard because in previous years the ottomans used lawfare diplomacy to Demonstrate their military strength So if a uh, European power wanted to Conclude a peace treaty with the Ottomans They had to go to the Ottoman imperial capital And most of the peace treaties Were concluded either In Constantinople or in Edirne the previous uh, uh, Imperial center That was the first time when the Ottomans uh, Had to go uh, To uh, The Habsburg delegation camp and signed a peace treaty there. And it also ended the the perception of the invincibility of the um, Ottoman military. And I cite a uh, contemporary uh, and if I can find in my book I might be able to read it for you. Uh, it was a Hungarian statesman who after the recon, uh, reconquest of a famous hungarian fortress uh, said the following to the later uh, grand vizier uh, and i quote we used to compare the muslims to a box that our ancestors did not dare to open anyone who asked what was in what was in this box received the reply that it was full of snakes centipedes and scorpions if the box were to be opened, they would swarm all over our land, biting and killing people. As this story went the rounds, they came to believe it and so became firm in their mistaken convictions. Each of our emperors and kings put a lock on it so that the box would not be opened and the world not be destroyed in his time. Now, out of necessity, We opened it, and it turns out that the box is empty There is nothing at all inside What a pity that up until now We have lived our lives in this uh, false uh, belief That is, they realized that the Ottomans were not as strong Not as dangerous as they believed So that psychological realization was also important um, by the way, there was a similar um, uh, psychological impact of the Battle of Lepanto, which ended uh, the notion of the invincibility of the Ottoman Navy. Now, uh, the third um, uh, um, issue I would like to mention is the impact of this war uh, on the transformation of the um, Ottoman military. So we talked about before that um, the Ottoman military, uh, the majority of the uh, the bulk of the military consisted of um, the uh, so-called provincial cavalry uh, forces that were living in the provinces and were paid through these Timar land grants, land revenues, and only a small portion of the uh, army consisted of the central standing troops. In when we talk about deployed uh, forces, about 60,000 under Suleiman, uh, the percentage would be 75% of the deployed troops would be uh, provincial cavalry forces and only 25% of the central troops. And, but by the uh, late 16th century, uh, we witnessed that uh, the increase of the central troops. So, by after the war, whereas under Suleiman it was about 16,000, uh, uh, two years after the death of Suleiman, uh, 19,000 soldiers, the central uh, army, which included the janissaries, the artillery, and the palace cavalry. Uh, after the end of this long war, Uh, the number is uh, over 66,000. So in the old days, historians said, look, the Ottomans faced a different Habsburg army, uh, a Habsburg army which was on the cutting edge of contemporary military uh, tactics, technology. Uh, They had a lot of infantry equipped with firearms and the Ottomans were unable uh, to... Uh, respond and this is why uh, they were uh, defeated especially in field battles and the Ottomans responded to this challenge to, in two ways one they started to recruit uh, uh, haphazardly uh, peasants uh, as infantry who already knew how to use these firearms despite the prohibition that uh Weapons, the, uh, the uh, taxpaying Raya uh, could not possess weapons. There There is a spread of firearms and smuggling on firearms and illicit uh, manufacturing on firearms in Anatolia. So the Ottoman central government tapped into the source and hired these uh, peasant soldiers, uh, but only for the campaign season. And then uh, they send them back, which... By the way, would cause uh, disturbances and uh, rebellions, we are going to talk about in a minute, uh, in Anatolia and other places. And the second way to respond to the uh, Habsburg challenge was they started to increase the number of janissaries uh, who were infantry who already used the uh, firearms. Um, this is only partly true because um, uh, we see that um, there were domestic reasons, uh, and 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 the number of janissaries uh, started uh, to increase even under Suleiman. Um, and um, it was not just uh, the Habsburg war; uh, the war against the Safavids uh, also was a major stimulus for. Increasing uh, the number of janissaries, for instance. So, if you, uh, I, I found uh, a series of new data in the Ottoman archives, which shows you that uh, during the war against the Habsburg, uh, against the Safavids uh, from 1578 to 90, uh, the number of janissaries uh, increased by 50 52 percent. But it continued, this increase continued and even accelerated uh, during the long war. So the long war indeed had a major impact because by um, so the long war started in earnest in uh, 1593 um, and um, around that time they had only 24,000 and uh, uh, four years later uh, we have data that the number of uh, these troops increased up to uh, 35,000. So that was a major uh, change, and it had long-term uh, effect on the um, Ottoman military.
1: How did the Ottoman administrative structure or structures evolve, and how did they compare to Western and Central European state structures in the period covered by your book?
0: The Ottoman Empire's administrative structure went through many uh, changes. One turning point, and we mentioned it briefly, is after the conquest of Constantinople. Um, Until then, um, it's an expanding frontier principality, and uh, with the prestige of the conquest of Constantinople, Mahmud Reshaped the administration and turned it into a more centralized patrimonial empire. Um, and there are many uh, signs of that. Uh, the Sultan is advised by an imperial council. Uh, the second uh, in command in the Ottoman structure is the Grand Vizier. Prior to the conquest of Constantinople, Uh, Many grand viziers came from the uh, Turkish aristocracy. There were families who were almost as important, as famous as the Ottoman dynasty itself. One of these dynasties was the Chandarli dynasty, who gave many grand viziers and chief uh, justices uh, for the empire. Uh, And... um, one, uh, particular figure, Chandali Halil Pasha, is important, uh, because he signaled uh, the end of an era and uh, the beginning of a new era. Chandali Halil Pasha had been the Grand Vizier, uh, of Mahmud II's father, uh, Murad II. And, um, um, Murad II, when um, in uh, 1444, when he managed to uh, conclude a peace treaty with the Hungarians in 1444, uh, after a major uh, Hungarian uh, uh, campaign uh, that reached almost as far as Sofia in the Balkans, he concluded a peace treaty uh, w- with the Hungarians. Then he dealt with another uh, enemy of the early Ottoman state, the Karaman Principality um, in uh, Asia Minor. And after that, he resigned and made his uh, young 11-year-old uh, uh, son, uh, Mehmed, uh the Sultan. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail, but then the uh, Hungarians uh, would... Uh, break the treaty, and uh, that would lead to the uh, so-called crusade of Varna in November. And at that critical time, uh, Chandali Halil Pasha, Grand Vizier, recalled uh, uh, Sultan Murad because he considered the young uh, sultan unable to deal with uh, a major crusading invasion. And indeed, the Ottomans defeated this crusade at the Battle of Varna uh, in November. Uh, After that... the the sultan resigned again uh retired again but then in uh two years later there was an insurrection rebellion uh, by the janissaries who resented the reforms the centralizing reforms of uh, the young sultan uh, and the the, uh, devaluation of the silver chain which they received their uh, uh, salaries and then uh, Chandralli Khalil Pasha recalled now for good uh, uh, the sultan, uh, uh, the young sultan's father, Murad II. And he would rule until he dies in uh, 1451. Uh, when uh, now the 90, uh, 19 years old, Mahmud II assumes power in 1451, he arrived in a, with a, a plan of centralizing the empire and uh, to conquer Constantinople. He retained the old Grand Vizier, Chandali Halil Pasha, who opposed his plans to conquer Constantinople. He remembered the crusade of 1444, and he warned the young sultan that it would lead, uh, uh, it would provoke yet another uh, crusade against the Ottomans. It didn't happen, as we know, and the young sultan uh, captured, conquered Constantinople in uh, uh, 1453. The conquest of Constantinople. Historians talk about decisive battles in history. If there was a decisive battle, the conquest of Constantinople was a decisive battle. It uh, gave the Ottoman Empire uh, an imperial capital with all the prestige. It gave the Ottoman Empire control over the trade routes uh, that were coming from the Black Sea through the Uh, Straight to the Mediterranean it uh, enhanced the young sultan's prestige in in Islamdom because uh, Muslims uh, uh, first uh, started to uh, Conquer Constantinople uh, Under the first Umayyad Caliph uh, so and and uh, several times after and they failed and this young uh, Ottoman Sultan now managed to uh, do that but it was instrumental in the development of the Ottoman state and state institutions. Using his prestige, after the conquest of Constantinople, Mehmed executed his Grand Vizier. And after that, in the next 200 years, uh, only 11 out of the 80 Grand Viziers would be born Muslim Turks. The rest are either uh, people with no background coming from the so-called child levy, the child tax, uh, or from uh, the former uh, Byzantine Slav uh, nobility. But these people uh, owed everything to the sultan and uh, several of them would be executed. They didn't have uh, large landed estates. They didn't have uh, networks uh, like the old Turkish aristocracy was. So uh, this event symbolizes the transition uh, towards a more centralized uh, patrimonial empire uh, where uh, the members of the administration served um uh, at the uh, request uh of uh the sultan and could be deposed and killed uh if the sultan wanted to do that. Uh Mahmed uh uh kept the and even um developed the um, advisory body the so-called divan although Uh, Sometimes he did not preside over uh, the council's meeting. The council's members included the grand vizier, uh, other viziers, uh, much later the head of the janissaries as well. Uh, It included the two chief judges of the land and the two uh, treasurers uh, of the land and um so you can see that this is a rather centralized uh government uh Mehmed also used his prestige to reshape the provincial administration we mentioned how the so-called marcher lords in the early conquest of the ottoman empire was uh, were important uh now he uh um After the conquest of Constantinople, he continued the conquest, and these conquests uh, would conquer territories that would remain under Ottoman rule for centuries. And um, after uh, they conquer a new territory, an important, strategically important uh, town, uh, they created a new uh, uh, sub-province there, uh, so-called Sanjak. And by creating these new administrative, provincial administrative units, he would incorporate the lands of these semi independent martial lords into uh, this um, uh, provincial administration, which was under the control of the central government, under the control of the dynasty. The, uh, the uh, provincial governors of these territories were appointed. Uh, by the central government, uh, by the dynasty. They served the dynasty. They got their revenues through the dynasty. So you can see a centralization in the provincial administration as well. Um, At the same time, um, in uh, the states that were fighting uh, the Ottomans, um, the administrative systems are less centralized. Uh, But if you look at the uh, Habsburg uh, administrative development, for instance, you can see the Ottoman impact when the Ottomans conquered Hungary, part of Hungary, and the Habsburgs uh, uh, became kings of Hungary and Bohemia and Croatia. And when they had to build a defense system to stop further Ottoman expansion towards Vienna, Uh, They started to centralize their administration. They created new uh, uh, central bodies for the finances, for uh, uh, the military, for the provisioning of the military, for building the fortresses, and so on and so forth. So I argue in my book that Ottoman pressure in Hungary, in Croatia, forced the Habsburgs to centralize their military fiscal uh, administration. And although we mentioned this briefly, that they lacked the resources, the Habsburgs lacked the resources, so they were dependent on the Hungarian, the Croatian, the Austrian estates, these estates revenues, these estates soldiers, um, and um, administrative knowledge, administrative networks. So um, the Ottomans had a dual impact on the evolution of the Habsburg administration. On the one hand, they pushed them towards centralization, but on the other hand, they perpetuated the uh, role of the estates and uh, this um, duality in Habsburg uh, military and fiscal administration. While the Habsburgs were going towards a more central uh, administration with the help of the estates, at the same time, the Ottomans were going towards a decentralized uh, uh, military and fiscal administration. And again, it had to do with the long wars because the older Ottoman military and administrative system uh, uh, functioned perfectly in a time when wars were seasonal wars. The sultan went to war in the spring. And returned uh, in the late fall, but now there is a different type of war uh, that lasted for decades, starting with the Safavid war on 1578. So if you think about, they started the war, the Ottomans against the Safavids 1578. Uh, they ended it in 90. Then they started the war against the Habsburgs in 93 ended in uh, 1606. But at at the same time, they already started another war against the uh, Safavids in 1603, which um, with some uh, small truces uh, lasted until 1639. So we are talking about uh, a 60 year war, if you will. And uh, the traditional Ottoman administrative fiscal and military systems were not able uh, to wage these wars and it pushed the Ottomans towards um, uh, um, a more decentralized uh, system.
1: Uh, Why did the uh, Ottoman siege of Vienna in 1683 fail?
0: There are several reasons. The Ottomans were not prepared uh, for this uh, war. Um, Just as in uh, 1529, when they first tried to uh, capture Vienna, uh, they didn't have enough siege uh, siege cannons um, and the small field cannons and the medium caliber cannons were uh, um, not sufficient enough. The Ottomans were still good in, in uh, siege warfare, especially in mining, and they caused a lot of damage uh, to the uh, uh, to the walls. Uh, the war wall By 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 early September, Uh, in fact, they had a chance to take this uh, uh, fortress. The 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 siege, you can start the siege in mid July, by which uh, Vienna was encircled and cut off, and uh, the continuous uh, bombardment and especially the mining. Uh, weakened the defenses and um historians speculate that um if uh Kara Mustafa Pasha had ordered a uh, decisive final assault, he had a chance to take Vienna uh, after um uh, they uh you know, destroyed the Burg Bastion on September uh, the 6th, which damaged uh, a good part of the defenses. So there was a tactical mistake, if you will, because Kara Mustafa Pasha, instead of uh, ordering an assault, uh, paraded his military in front of the walls uh, to force the city to surrender. And um, but by this time, there was a relief army gathering an army of 75 to 80,000 men with 160 cannons uh, to relieve Vienna. Troops from Bavaria, Saxony, Franconia, Swabia, um, and uh, um, also the troops of uh, King Sobieski, uh, po- his Polish troops, some uh, 20,000 troops were coming. And, uh, it was this coalition of central European, uh, European forces that defeated the Ottoman army on September the 12th at, at Um, and, um, so, uh, this was the first time that the European forces in coalition were able to mobilize an army that was comparable in number um, to the Ottoman forces. It was better equipped. It was better led. It was better uh, uh, provisioned. And that uh, uh, made uh, the difference. After the uh, after they relieved uh, Vienna, unlike in um, the mid-17th century, um, in um, In the 1660s, when they scored a major victory and uh, a week later, the Habsburgs concluded a peace treaty uh, with uh, the Ottomans. Now they pushed further um, and um, in the next uh, 15 years, they reconquered most of Hungary um, and they pushed the Ottomans back to the uh, other side of the Danube, which they considered uh, a... Uh, border river but it was again a coalition of European forces a year later uh, after this victory uh, there was a former Holy League uh, the Liga Sacra and the Holy League's forces uh, attacked the Ottomans uh, uh, in, um, in multiple fronts and none of the contemporary empires was strong enough to fight a war Uh, in multiple fronts. In fact, the Ottomans were very, very efficient prior to this to divide the Europeans and they used uh, lawfare, they used diplomacy uh, to uh, divide the Europeans and to avoid multi-front engagement. So if you think about the Battle of Lepanto, for instance, not all the major empires or European states participated in the Battle of Lepanto because the Ottomans had previously uh, concluded a peace treaty, for instance, the Holy Roman Emperor in uh, 1568. So the Holy Roman Emperor was not part of the Holy League. Um, uh, At the time of the Battle of Lepanto, they uh, they, uh, concluded a major peace treaty and a trade agreement with France uh, in 1569, uh, just a year before they conquered uh, Cyprus, which would provoke the uh, Battle of Lepanto, they were unable to do this at the end of the 17th century because this coalition remained firm. Uh, even Russia would join this coalition two years later in 1686, and uh, and uh, Russian troops would uh, uh, would attack in the northeastern frontier uh, of uh, the Ottoman. Empire, uh, they would um, and the Poles would retake uh, uh, Podolia the Venetians are fighting the Ottomans in the Morea uh, the Habsburgs are pressing along the Danube uh, and the Ottomans had to divide their armies and now they are facing uh, the. Uh, most of the uh, major field battles took place, what is today Hungary and Hungary uh, but the Ottomans are facing an army which is comparable in numbers and uh, better led, better uh, equipped than uh, the Ottomans were. Because of the... Uh, uh, we talked about how the by the end of the 17th century this Ottoman army was more uh, decentralized.
1: Would you say that... Um the Ottomans' failure to evolve into a fiscal military state uh, and the European pattern contributed to those defeats of the late 17th, early 18th century.
0: Their Their defeat is uh, was due to many many factors. One was the evolution of the um, their um, their competitors, their rivals, the Habsburg military, later the Russian military. Um, Uh, which uh, evolved into uh, better armies, larger armies, um, better uh, uh, equipped and better provisioned armies. The Ottomans had a major advantage throughout the 16th century um, because of the Timar system uh, that maintained uh, the larger part of the army. But uh, due to changes in the nature of warfare, um, due to the spread of firearms, against which the uh, light cavalry sipahis, uh, provincial uh, sipahis of the Ottoman army, militarily were uh, 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 weak. So the Ottomans had to reshape their military. And um, uh, this, uh, this military uh, was now based, uh, we talked about how about 50% of the army is the deployed army against the Habsburgs at the end of the 17th century came from the central troops. But when you increase the number of janissaries from 10,000 to 37 or 40 or 50,000, uh, then it would affect the quality of the janissaries. When the janissaries originally had been an elite uh, shock, uh, an elite troop that defended the Sultan, and they formed a uh, a barrier, um, that, uh, protected the Sultan during sieges. These were the, uh, the troops that would scale the ladders and, uh, take the fortress, uh, towards the end, uh, of the siege. Um, and they were, uh, well selected. They were trained for uh, decades and so on and so forth. Now, um, if you need to increase this military, you cannot keep up the same quality. And um, by the mid-17th uh, century, by the 1660s, the main source of recruitment, the so-called child levy, dies out. So who are these janissaries then, you can ask? Um, um, originally, the janissaries were not supposed to marry. But starting... As early as uh, uh, Suleiman's father, Selim, we have sources that indicate that some Janissaries, older Janissaries, were allowed to marry. By the uh, mid-16th century, latter part of the 16th century, we have Janissaries who are marrying. They have families, and what they try, they try to uh, 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 recruit their sons into the Janissary core. Uh, remember that being a janissary was a privilege. Uh, the Ottoman society was divided into two uh, major sections: the tax-paying subjects—Muslims, Christians, uh, peasants, and merchants and uh, artisans—who were playing the, uh, paying the taxes, and the non-paying uh, askeri uh, elite uh, um, people—the the, the military, uh, the bureaucracy and the religious establishment. So being a janissary, you didn't pay taxes. Uh, the state paid you uh, regularly uh, um, for your services. Um, as the empire expanded, not all janissaries uh, had to fight and die <laughs> or risk dying in, in the battles. In fact, only about 20-25% of these large numbers, we are talking about the 40,000 and the 50,000 of Janissaries would be mobilized and risk their lives during battles. Uh, And one-third of the Janissaries would serve in frontier uh, um, fortresses, for instance. And um, a good portion of them would be uh, retired uh, Janissaries or unable to fight, but they still receiving their pensions, their salaries. So it wasn't a bad business to be a janissary, especially when you could retire early. Uh, you used your uh, status, uh, uh, tax-exempt status, to have your own business, to have your own shops, uh, to uh, engage in, um, in in trade, and so on and so forth. So um, historians call it the civilianization of the Janissaries. Uh, we have sources that uh, tell you that um, the tax people from the tax-paying Raya managed to buy their way into the Janissary core. They never went to war. They appear, their names appear on the, uh, on the list. They are using their privileges uh, to do their business without paying taxes. Uh, as I mentioned, the sons of the Janissaries are recruited. Uh, the Janissary commanders, sons and so on and so forth, are recruited as well. Uh, so there is a... These Janissaries, at the end of the 17th century, these are not the allied troops of Suleiman in the early 16th century. So... Uh, the quality is uh, uh, is not the same. But this is only about half of the mobilized army. What happened to these old uh, provincial cavalry? Now they constitute only 10-15% of the mobilized army. You still have some of these janissaries, But um, whereas the provincial Kavari that was uh, paid through these uh, Timar land grants, uh, the, they are not mobilized or a very small portion of these uh, uh, Sipahis are mobilized. Their revenue is used. So what is happening when in the old classical system, if a, if a Sipahi, the provincial Kavari died, uh, someone Who was worthy of it got his land and continued to perform uh, the military service because of the change in uh, the military and the nature of warfare this uh, this Ottoman uh, central government needed fewer of these uh, folks these light cavalry so when uh, there was a vacant revenue they wouldn't redistribute it to another light cavalry which they couldn't use against the Habsburgs but they would attach it to the crown lands to increase the revenue at the, under the control of the central treasury so that they can pay uh, more janissaries whom they needed and who, uh, whose number they were increasing. Um, in the faraway provinces, uh, the central government is unable to collect the revenues and they would farm out the collection of these revenues. Many of these tax farmers are local strongmen or provincial governors, uh, whose revenue would be increased. But they uh, they are using this revenue uh, to maintain their own uh, militaries, their own small quote unquote private armies. In um, earlier historiography, claimed that. Um, uh, the due to this decentralization, the Ottoman government lost control over the resources. Whereas in under Suleiman, early years of Suleiman, they controlled about 50% of the total collectible revenues of the state, uh, by the, uh, early, uh, 17th century is only 25% or so. And they said, look, um. Uh, now you can see why the the military is weakening. But it's, it's um, not exactly true because some of that revenue uh, was collected uh, in the provinces. You have uh, about a dozen of provincial uh, treasuries and they use these uh, revenues to pay uh, the frontier uh, garrisons because the number of frontier garrisons and the army that is serving there increased also with the expansion of the ottoman empire another uh, part of this revenue is collected by these local strongmen and provincial governors but it is not wasted because they are using it to maintain their own armies and these armies were mobilized uh, uh, during the wars uh, at the end of the 17th century against the Habsburgs. Now, the problem with these uh, uh, troops uh, was that the quality, the weaponry, uh, the command, uh, the training uh, of these armies was uh, uneven. And it was very, very difficult to command an army that uh, uh, consisted of so many parts uh, of so unequal uh, quality.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be
0: that <laughs> you have to view the emergence and the transformation of the Ottoman Empire in its European and Middle Eastern uh, context and uh, that uh, the history of southeastern Europe uh, central Europe the history of the Habsburg monarchy the history of six uh, the 16th century uh, rivalry uh, within Europe, within Western Europe, between the Valois uh, and the Habsburg uh, um, uh, uh, dynasties cannot be understood without uh, the Ottomans, who played a crucial role, not just as a major challenge uh, for the Habsburgs in the Mediterranean and in Central Europe, but also as a possible diplomatic and trade partner uh, for some of the states who, were willing to cooperate uh, with uh, the Ottomans. You cannot understand the evolution of Ottoman diplomacy, the emergence of uh, the standing embassies, uh, the emergence of a more sophisticated information gathering system without the Ottomans. Constantinople, not just the capital, Ottoman Constantinople, not just the capital of one of the strongest Mediterranean and European powers, uh, the Ottoman Empire, but it's also a key uh, center uh, for uh, European diplomacy, where all the major players uh, had their own embassies and it was a center of espionage. It was a center of uh, major politicking in the 16th and 17th centuries.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor, very much.
0: Thank you very much.